Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. Just knowing the imposter syndrome that is holding you back. Looking back and seeing no. I've done this, this, this. So my fears are not true. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. That's one perspective that helps is reflecting back on the journey to prove yourself wrong because all the fears and biases are just in your head. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. In this episode, Bhavani Seneji, VP of Product Engineering at Cruise, shares her leadership journey and how she gained critical cross-functional experience across both large and small-scale companies. And our conversation covers both career transition topics plus org building topics. So we get into things like how to spotlight your own fears and biases when making career transitions, how to gain product experience alongside engineering, determining which elements of your engineering org to mature or invest in during that rapid growth period, plus questions to consider when investing in technology or processes. Bhavani also shares some of her favorite strategies to help you clarify what you want next how to ask for and advocate for those new experiences. Let me introduce you to Bhavani. Previously, she's led teams through different growth stages at places like Microsoft, Snap, Headspace, and Heal. Additionally, she enjoys giving back to the community, advising C-level executives, mentoring at Techstars, and First Round. Bhavani's also founded a group of women technology executives in Los Angeles and plays an active role in the LA CTO Forum. Enjoy this conversation with Bhavani Seneji. First off, just wanted to say welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us on the show. Uh, how are things? How are you doing today? I think uh, I'm doing amazing. It's a great way to start off the uh, new year. What I'm super excited is about, I just took a ride yesterday in the cruise car. We were at the team dinner and a good way to kick it off. At the same time, as part of the wrap-off, we took the cruise ride and uh, I was giving kind of a demo to my coworker. For her, it was the first time. And Patrick, it's just amazing to see the joy that the first-time riders feel. So it was very satisfying as well as it was very humbling to see some of the new features and enhancements and uh, being able to see them firsthand, play around with them firsthand and give feedback on that. What seems so exciting about some of the space that you're in is you get this really like physical, visceral, tangible experience with the, the end product and how transformational that that can be for people and how radically different that is. Well, anyway, we are here to talk more about you. So I know that you and I talked about a couple different topics, uh, some things around cross-functional leadership and decision-making around investing in tech capabilities. But I wanted to begin our conversation with more around your leadership journey and how you gained cross-functional product experience. So Bhavani, could you tell us a little bit about your career journey and when you first began to get more cross-functional product experience alongside the work you'd been doing within engineering? 
Sure. And Patrick, before I uh, jump into that, I just wanted to say thank you so much for having me here. I really appreciate uh, what you are doing with this podcast, which is, you know, democratizing, bringing some of the leaders and, you know, their experiences. Uh, Because I, throughout my journey, have listened to some of these, you know, leaders and their journeys. And that has helped me because when I'm going through something, you realize you're not the only one and you can relate to some of the things that you heard and some of the tips they have to share or even if nothing else that it is okay that it takes time through that phase or challenges that you're going and there is no magical solution because you are you know one piece in the bigger ecosystem and influencing a change which is not going to be immediate overnight so just wanted to say thank you so much as someone who believes a lot into communities and giving back what you're doing is very very profound and has huge ripple effects sometimes that you might not even see or hear about but I'm sure it is well thank you so much that really means a lot to myself and everybody in our team it really does Bhavani thank you So I think going back to your question around the pieces for cross-functional experiences, the thing where it started all was thinking end-to-end and expanding beyond roles, departments uh, would naturally expand career horizons. And that's what drew me to cross-functional roles. Um, So give you a little bit context. I was at Microsoft for uh, 15 years. And, you know, you you hear from people that, oh, you should be, you know, hopping around more or changing things more around quickly. For me, it is more around what are the experiences that you want to gain? And are you getting them? And whether it is in the same group, whether it's in the same company or same industry, that all is just a means to the end. You shouldn't be indexing on that versus you should be indexing on what are the experiences. And that's where at Microsoft, I was really uh, happy to gain both those uh, large scale services experiences where Windows Update was the largest cloud service at that time, as well as kicking off and being a founding member of a startup within Microsoft and being able to hear and learn and experience the dealing with ambiguity, wearing multiple roles. This is where the only difference being that in a true startup, you have financial uh, risk, but within Microsoft, you don't run out of the funding. But every other thing, pivoting or, you know, learning and iterating are all applicable. So within this context, for me, it was important to gain that end-to-end picture and end-to-end experiences. And that's where I was looking at what are the ways to expand my strategic and business learning capabilities over there. And that's kind of where I uh, shifted to taking on an opportunity for product management. And this was, of course, there were a lot of naysayers who said, don't do this. <laughs> and uh, and they have their own reasons because I was understanding where they were coming from versus for me, it was more around gaining experiences. And I see the career as a jungle gym rather than a straight path. And down the line, for me, it was important that being an effective leader meant knowing these different functions, being in their shoes to know, have compassion, have empathy, and be able to know how to partner better. And I think it it has been super, super impactful for me to go through that. And as part of that, I also then subsequently took on multifunctional leadership roles. More and more, the boundary is so narrow for some of these aspects as you expand and move up. So it really is very uh, helpful experience to have. 
I can see sort of the dots connecting between all these different ones. And I think one of the things that I've re- I really appreciate is how sort of the objective to expand the strategic and business learnings that you had as like one of the core guiding principles and also the the goal to think about the end-to-end experiences and how that expands opportunities. I think those are two really powerful frameworks or philosophies to think about in terms of seeking new opportunities. I think that's really interesting. How were you able to, to gain exposure and expertise across some of these different types of companies that you worked at? Like looking at, you know, I think more tactically when you're looking at that next step, maybe within Microsoft to go from the larger scale experiences to the startup within a startup, from engineering to product. Can you talk a little bit more about like how you were able to more tactically jump into those opportunities? I would say that two, three aspects. One is your question is around how how do you navigate and knowing what what is the right thing. And I am not a planner for my career. <laughs> so let me let me state that. I'm more kind of an organic person going with the flow. I don't plan out like five, 10 years ahead. For me, like learning is a big thing. Mm-hmm. And so as long as you're having fun, you're solving challenging problems, you're expanding your experiences and all, then you know you're you're okay. So this is where what you're mentioning is kind of what are these different transition phases for the career. Mm-hmm. For me, kind of there were two or three ones that pop out. One was managerial. And that is where I was like, okay, I was able to connect the dots. I was able to take the bigger picture and, you know, break it down. I loved working with people and, you know, was mentoring people. And so that kind of progressed into the bigger scope and management area. And then there was as a part of what I was talking about, the product management is where I was looking for more different experiences. And so I went from manager to an individual contributor because I was looking for more around product management experience and wanted to focus on that and be able to gain that additional experience there. And I was there uh, 15 years at Microsoft, and one of the opportunities was uh, was running a satellite group. Um, So I was uh, running a team in Boston, and that was an amazing experience to be able to bring that culture shift from the head office to a remote work and how to give that, you know, remote work the autonomy to succeed. So that's kind of the experiences. And that's when I realized that I wanted to gain experiences of a different company outside of Microsoft. And it was a very hard decision for me. I was talking to some of the leaders at uh, Microsoft and they're like, what can we do to keep you? And I'm like, I love Microsoft, but I just want to gain that different experience so that even when I come back, I'll be kind of a rounded leader. And I think it was a good one to pop out from the, they used to call that the uh, 90052 zip code, kind of the Redmond zip code, (laughs) and just get a different perspective. So I think that's where, for me, that startup experiences of a different company, not just the startup, because I'd gained that at Microsoft, was humbling and be able to bring my expertise as well as being able to learn and connect the dots with, you know, different uh, non-tech leaders and uh, stakeholders, etc. So I think that's kind of where the progression has been. And the last thing that was kind of the, some of the recent progression was due to some of the events that happened in my life. It was for me, it was a reflection talking about January and reflection. It was a reflection on what was important to me. And mm-hmm. that's kind of where working on a product that I related to that was you know, contributing towards, you know, making people's life better, giving back to the community. And kind of that's where some of my recent things were kind of, you know, mission-driven companies um, that would help kind of, you know, leave the world in a better footprint. So that's kind of been my progression. I tell people each one's journey is different. What is important to you? What What's the calling that's coming to you is unique. So learn from others' experience 
but don't try to follow or replicate that because that might not be the best thing for you. Mm-hmm. I, I appreciate you you noting that, Bhavani. And I think what stands out to me too is like when we're we're talking through this, like it's what's so cool is to be able to pull out some of the the questions you've asked yourself or the the guiding principles that led you to a decision. So that somebody listening in, you know, maybe they don't take the same path, but they're asking the same questions that lead them to to a new insight. And I think that's great. And so you mentioned some of the the different scales of companies that you've worked at. And so I was wondering if you maybe could could walk us through a couple of examples of, you know, the cross-functional leadership experience around design, product, and engineering, and how that maybe is different at a larger company compared to a smaller company, or the types of of lessons that you can learn, like what's unique about each of those. And so I was wondering if you could share maybe a couple examples from your experience and the lessons you learned from some of those experiences. One thing that just came to my mind, I wanted to just build on what you were mentioning earlier, right, around Mm -hmm. some of the guiding principles to drive the decision making for your career and path. And one of the things I would like to stress also is on watching out for biases and fears that hold you back during those decision making, right? And being explicitly seeking truth on while you're deciding this, is something holding you back? Are you doing this because it's comfort zone or X, Y, Z? So you cannot trick yourself. So kind of, you know, double clicking on there and actually seeking will give you huge insights into what is actually, you know, important and true calling for you. And I'll give you an example where uh, I was talking to one of my persons I was mentoring. They were talking about their career and, you know, where they wanted to do and what they were uh, doing, our discussions they were happening happening with their managers, kind of all some of the tactical things which you provide tips and guidance. But I was trying to see like what is holding back or what is the thing. It was just amazing that she just had an aha moment that For her in the family, she was the only kind of income bringing person. And so that stability and the fear was holding her back. But that discovery was so powerful for her. She wasn't even realizing that it was just happening at such an implicit level that it was holding her back in no matter what she would finish the tactical checklist, it wouldn't because some of these things were holding her back. So I think that is where it's just knowing or talking to someone or having a confidant, friend, family, whatever works to kind of know what is going to help you shine where you can bring the best and what's trying to hold you back and cutting some of that off. I have a follow-up question based off of this because almost moments before we we hopped on, you know, recording here, my wife and I were sitting on the couch and and she was talking about some self-reflection she had done and she like saw this thing on social media pop up about in this year of reflection, you can focus on your goals or your dreams, but what's most important is to focus on your fears. So this is literally what we were talking about moments before. Do you you have any questions that you ask to help reveal or clarify some of the fears that maybe are holding you back or the biases that maybe um, are, are leading you to invent stories that are preventing you from taking a next step. What's your process there? How, how do you do that? That's a great question. There are multiple ways. One is just knowing kind of the imposter syndrome that is holding you back. For me, it is like I'm always having a very high bar. So am I, you know, hitting myself more? And you know, how do I, how do I be kind to myself? How do I support myself better? So I think that's one thing first, looking back and seeing no. I've done this, this, this. So my fears are not true. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. So kind of that's one perspective that helps is reflecting back on the journey to prove yourself wrong because all the fears and biases are just in your head. The second one is around talking to a 
confidant, as I was saying, because or sometimes what I do is also think of it in a third person, right? If it was your sister, if it was your friend, what advice would you give that person? It's so that, you know, you now have a better backbone to fight and stand for that person versus yourself. So that kind of becomes a second aspect. And the third is not to be so focused and just have fun. For that, what I do is I look, think of it as the bigger picture, like the universe, the stars. And I'm like, this, <laughs> this small thing here <laughs> and things are working. I don't have to be so hard on myself or every decision doesn't have to be weighed down to such an extent. It's okay. The problem is not a big mountain. Just... <laughs> let it go. So I think those are some of the ways to kind of offset it. And then of course, you know, as you seek truth and there are some things and how you, you know, work through them or keep in mind how to complement that, etc. I really appreciate a, a few of those just to, to relate really quickly. The third person, like what advice would you give that person? I, I have to imagine is such an unlocking question because it, it takes you out of your head and helps you think about it differently. And the, the last point that you mentioned about you know, having fun and considering, you know, you're this small part of this vast and infinite universe. My my wife and I, we talk about absurdist gratitude a lot, where you talk about just like how absurd it is to be, you know, doing what you're doing in this physical environment or universe that we're, that we're in, like to, I think, reframe about how fun or how much of a privilege it is to be doing what you're doing in the space that you're in. So I really love sort of the fun and the absurdity of that if you feel really bogged down by the stress of a decision or the grind of a project. Um, so I, I, I love that. Totally, totally. You summed it very well. <laughs> now we can go to the question. Yes, now we can. Uh, now we can go. So, um, yeah, would love love to hear maybe a couple of examples of that cross functional leadership experience of design, product, engineering, and how what that's like at a large company versus a small company, and, and maybe some lessons that you learn from those experiences. I'll talk about some of the differences and some of the commonalities as well. So some of the differences are that in a larger company, you have some of the things which are well-defined, like processes, tooling, building blocks, because it's become a repeat pattern and play. Versus in a smaller company, those might not exist based on the stage of the company. And hence accounting for first putting some of those in place is really important. And especially if you're coming from a larger company to a smaller company, you, know, you have to keep in mind that everything is not there. You have to account for things that will be needed uh, as a prerequisite first and to take some of those steps in nimble ways because you don't, you don't want to put the processes or the best practices or tooling that is needed at the same caliber as a high, larger level company. But it is more around putting the principles again in mind. The principles for some of these is to drive efficiency. And what does driving efficiency mean here? So what are some of the things that will help to get through the stage and the challenges that the company is going through right now? Mm -hmm. So always kind of looking at the paddles and patterns and frameworks, but again, not kind of having to follow the exact same steps. So being open about the journey you take there. Talking a bit about the commonality pieces, the commonality pieces are staying focused and prioritization and how to reduce the barriers to execution. So I'll give you an example where as the projects go bigger with different groups, etc. There's always going to be more, you know, overhead in collaboration and communication gaps that can result in. One example was at uh, Snapchat, we had uh, software teams, hardware teams, firmware teams and marketing kind of all working towards the glasses, the Snapchat uh, spectacles, uh, mm -hmm. deliverables. And each of these groups had their own multiple initiatives. And it was getting evident that, you know, some of these things are at risk. And so how 
how do you drive that focus? How do you bring the cross functions and cross groups together? Even some of just the basic things of saying, okay, you know, we need this whole tiger team and we need them to come together. We need them to be staying focused. We need them to be empowered and give them the ownership and accountability to drive that. So we got a DRI. We got some of these people uh, together. We, in fact, actually got all of them in one office area and through a lot of devices that they could test with. But these small, small things actually are so critical rather than just maintaining status quo, knowing what needs to be done differently to drive that and to bring people together and collaborate in a more iterative fashion was super helpful. So I think there are in the end pieces that you have to know of applying some of the tactics, whether it's bigger or smaller, to meet the end goal. There's a, a couple things that stood out to me. I think the commonality that you called out between large and small organizations being prioritization and reducing barriers to execution, that building that capability as a leader to help an organization or a team effectively prioritize and thinking about your role, your role is reducing barriers to execution to make it easier for your team. If you can build a capability with that, you'll be successful in, in a lot of these other contexts. So that that was a really, really clarifying point for me. I had a follow-up question about the, the Snapchat specs in that moment when everybody came together and all these different stakeholders as sort of this, we need to get everybody in the room to get this back on track. What did that conversation look like when you brought together or when all those stakeholders got brought together to get the project back on, on track? Can you, can you bring us into that moment? Yeah, uh, it's a very good double-clicking that you're doing there because it doesn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. Because A, there is first step is always denial for even accepting whether, <laughs> you know, things are at risk or doing some of small adjustments or putting it as, no, it's just this this process or if we just communicate this better or if we just do this meeting or if we just this one person. This is where having that open dialogue, open discussions, knowing kind of, you know, where the challenges are, bringing some of the data with it, seeking both qualitative and quantitative insights from the team, because the team on the ground also knows it. It's more around putting that picture together and seeing and asking, not just like, you know, what is the ground truth, but what do they think will work? And kind of, you know, using that as a way to bring to the table and bring the conversations forward will go a long way. The denial comment hits. I feel like I've been that person before thinking like, oh, everything is fine if I just tweak this one small thing and without having that critical conversation to get things back on track. So I think that was a great point. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. Bhavani, I wanted to, to change topics a little bit and to talk a little bit more about org maturity and the considerations around how to invest in or mature different organizations. And so I was wondering if you could share a little bit about how do you assess which elements of an organization that you should invest in or mature? Um, And I was wondering if you could share maybe a story or an example um, for how you think about that. Sure. Um, I think this this is dear to every leader's, <laughs> right? No yep. matter if you have a small team, big team, big company, small company, this is just you know, dear to everyone. I think the org maturity is, you can think of people side, 
there's process side, and then there is tooling or tech side, like kind of the three areas. Let me kind of touch more on the latter two areas to kind of keep it more sussing. The way I see it is the org maturity is what is the investment that is needed to optimize speed of innovation? Let's define what is speed of innovation. That is the organizational maturity through engineering excellence and operational excellence, such as ensuring the code base is stable, reliability, setting up the tech stack to scale efficiently. So all of these things the outcome is what is driving your, you know, feature capability, your business and revenue growth as you can scale. So that's the outcome. And that is where you need to invest to speed up that innovation. And some of the levers or kind of, you know, the steps that I see in mind are one is it's a mindset again right, of investing in this and thinking of this as a first class similar to the product development. The second is alignment and prioritization and making sure that we are all rowing in the same direction across business, across product, etc. And the third is metrics and measurement to inform data-driven decision-making. Which pieces are to be invested what will be the outcome? It is not kind of investing in tech for the sake of tech or tooling for the sake of tooling, or it's a fancy new tool or a fancy new tech, but what problem is it going to solve, how it will impact and using that similar framework. And the the third piece is investing into horizontal teams to lay out the technology foundation and the tooling to drive some of the reusability as well as efficiency. Some really great categories to to consider there. I was wondering if if maybe you could you could bring us into a conversation where where you're working through some of the considerations of of which to invest in in first, whether people process or, or technology. I was wondering if you'd share maybe some of the factors that you consider when making a decision in investing in maybe more established technology or a certain process that that needs to get reconfigured. Can you share a little bit more about some of the the factors or questions you consider? Sure. So I think one of the things is let's talk about staffing the horizontal teams. At which point should we be thinking about it? And I'll give you an example of in one of the the startups, uh, we had a business and product line and we were expanding into the second piece. And that's when it was like, you know, how do we go there faster? How do we not redo the same things again and again? And how do we build that platform layer? Because in the second product line, you need more investment because of the caliber of security checks and uh, governance around policies is going to be higher. So how do we level up our stack? So there was more kind of specific problems that the technology was going to solve to speed that up. And that resulted, so kind of, you know, looking at the outcome and then working backwards, that resulted that now is the time to help invest and set up a team for this, you know, common platform pieces and common foundation pieces that's going to help there. So that's kind of one aspect of what is the strategy? What is the objective you are trying to land? What does it need? And based on that, how do you staff it up? And then the second aspect is around an example around the framework pieces. Mm-hmm. And sometimes in the startup, you're just kind of trying to get the MVP and get just whether this has been viable. So at that point, you don't want to spend 
too much time and putting all the reliability bells and whistles because you don't even know if this is what you want to support and maintain and take it forward. But there comes a time when the scale starts picking up, you know, some of the feature additions pick up. And that's when you start seeing that you, you, you're you getting things buggy or code is uh, either, you know, the things were just in a proof of concept and now features have got built on it when no one said that is that was what is supposed to be done. So catching some of those signals early on and shifting that investment, in, in some cases you have to even pause that, hey, like, you know, we need to first build up some of these test gates, et cetera, before we can even build any feature because otherwise it's, it, it's, it's crumbling and it's not sustainable. So again, using data, because these decisions are hard. So using data to know, we, we use some of the metrics around, you know, how many incidents could be, you know, avoided due to quality. Because you're trying to fix an incident and another incident happens because you don't have the quality gates to have the confidence of some of the rollouts that you're doing. So kind of, you know, what are the count of incidents that could be avoided to quality as well as how many incidents were discovered, reported manually versus automated? Because the manual means you've, you know, had that much more window of people having to face these issues. And all of that is leading back to the credibility of the brand. At that point, it's like how much... You want to invest not just a framework, but the current application feature teams have to shift and focus more around the rigor to up-level some of the quality gates. And I think this is where the key is to not make some of these decisions in vacuum, but make it with your business product counterpart so that the whole prioritization roadmap stack ranking is looking at the bigger picture. So because in many cases, instead of that feature, the actual reliability investment is now giving you more revenue and customer stickiness because people are liking your product, even if you've not added any new feature. So the end goal is still being met by your growth and customer satisfaction, but through a different lens and a different means. So how do you look at that similar levers to drive the impact and to make it more of a flywheel? And I think that's a similar piece around refactoring, right? At which point, what piece needs to be refactored? It's because it's a continuum. I see the refactoring as more like car needing servicing. Some are lightweight, like oil change, or some are more invasive tune-ups that would require, you know, a migration uh, strategy as well. So many different lessons uh, as you're diving in there, and I can tell one of the one of the questions is like, you know, what are the factors that you consider, and the breadth of different sort of signals that you called out there that sort of then inform different directional shifts, I thought was was really interesting. So thank you for highlighting and sharing that. And I think one of the things, Patrick, I would, I would say is I see it as kind of a repeat and rinse, right? Being agile, being able to prioritize and measure. What this amounts to is a flywheel, which feeds in itself because investing for speed of innovation leads to higher development velocity, which leads to improved product innovation innovation and being able to scale. And that's kind of where I see it as a flywheel. I, I love the concept of a flywheel. This next follow-up question is kind of in the spirit of, of reflection. In hindsight, when you're looking back at the large-scale company context or the startup context, is there anything that maybe you would have done differently in terms of investing in or maturing different parts of the engineering organization? 
Oh, a lot of times <laughs> I'm not perfect and not all my decisions have been perfect. It's kind of what we were talking about earlier around denial, right? So reflecting back on how should we have started some of that investment sooner or how in some of these cases we should have done more of the investment rather than what we did. So I think there is no right or wrong answer, but being able to leverage some of these decision-making frameworks and principles and trying to look at that and use that frequently and putting that repeatable pattern to catch some of these things sooner so that, as you said, right, you do more smaller refactoring uh, uh, service changes versus one uh, big one. In some cases, you have to do the big one when time permits, but how do you keep that as a balance so that you don't have to, you don't want to go from one spectrum to the other. Mm -hmm. So how do you stay in that healthy balance and how do you watch out for those signals and, you know, how do you put in the right processes for that? Definitely. And one more, one more follow-up question. Have there been elements of, you know, investing in the maturity of different organizations that were that were maybe more tricky or more difficult to gain signal on what the right decision might be, or ones that you found maybe maybe more challenging than than others. Any thoughts there? One of the aspects is also around the people side, which we couldn't touch a lot, right? I'm a big believer of promoting from within. At the same time, you want to you want to bring in the right people or rather bring in, you want to put in the right people in place who have seen this and helps you get there. Because many times people, if, if you have, if they haven't seen it, then, you know, it's not easy to know what we are marching towards. So how do you kind of sense that you are investing not just in the tools and processes, but even leaders and individuals that can help pave the way through that and take the team through the change. And that's a very key aspect. And also, you know, be more conscious about that influencing change and checking in on how that change is uh, working or not working because we all underestimate some of the time investment it takes for the culture shifts to happen and to make it sticky and make it a muscle memory. So being more kind of, you know, proactive as well as investing in that as a more dedicated thought rather than a, a side thought. That's great. Thank you. We, we started our conversation by by talking about your early career journey. And I was wondering if you could share maybe some of your observations or lessons around asking for new experiences or with promotions and being able to gain exposure to some of the, the greater business strategy or the, the product or design elements of the org. I was wondering if you could share maybe your experience there or if you have a framework or how you approach that conversation. I think it is important to express and communicate what you are seeking while remaining flexible about the path to get there. And I'll give you an example. In one of the cases, my family had relocated and I joined a new group and we had some uh, pressing objectives and deliverables that were coming up and I was jumping into them and we landed them really well. And it was just a short period over there. And that's when the review periods, which is the promotion cycles were coming up. I was having my biases of, you know, it's a new group. I've been here for such a short time. How can I ask for a promotion and all these fears and how will it come across and things like that. And kind of taking that step back on, you know, using data again on, you know, what are the things, what is that impact, what is the skill sets that are expected and, and how does that look? And taking that bigger picture uh, of, you know, having that authentic conversations with the manager and, you know, being able to then leverage some of the past managers input and 
you know, experiences. So being able to wrap it up as a joint thing rather than just that small thing and being creative around what, what are the expectations and have those expectations been met. And it, it did go through. So I think if I hadn't asked or hadn't kind of seek truth on my end or, you know, use data, it wouldn't. So I think it's it's really kind of going back to some of the things that we were chatting about is like knowing what are some of the experiences, what are the skill sets that you're focusing on, what are the impacts that you are driving or objectives that you've landed and how you have landed, right? That is a bigger part of it to show that this is sustainable, repeatable, and having that frank discussions with your manager goes a long way. Great insights there. I I have one more question related to this topic because I think what stood out to me in our conversation so far, you know, going back to the beginning parts, when we were talking about, you know, the the time, uh, this being a time of reflection and, and how that reflection has provided a lot of guidance to you at different points in your career. I was wondering maybe if you had a favorite question that helped clarify what you wanted next, or um, if there were certain things you asked yourself to help you identify, what is it that you you want? Because I think oftentimes where I feel stuck is, right, the big question of, oh my gosh, what do I want? Uh, and, and I don't know, and that can be intimidating. So I was wondering if maybe, is there a question that you ask yourself that that maybe unlocks that for you? One of the questions is, how do I feel is one thing. And the second question is around, what am I learning, right? So that actually keeps me grounded that I'm not going to have all the answers to it. Uh, This is something going to be new. I will need to learn it, absorb it. And that keeps, you know, you grounded with both the, the level setting expectations as well that you're not the perfect know-it-all, but you have the openness. So being able to know what is that I'm going to be learning or what are the things that I need to be focusing on are very helpful to level set. And while leveraging what are some of the past skill sets or experiences. That's great. I love the power and the simplicity of that, even just to check in and ask yourself, how are you feeling and, and what are you learning and focusing on the past experiences? That's great. Bhavani, are you ready to dive in to some rapid fire questions? <laughs> sure, go for it. Perfect. Okay. What are you reading or listening to right now? I'm an avid reader. I should say not a reader, listener. And one of the recent audiobooks that left me with a lot of awe and at the same time helped me understand how the various countries and regions in the world have developed at various spaces is the book called Prisoners of Geography by Tim Marshall. It helps articulate things like how geography has played its role in shaping regions' history. And it was very interesting. Wow. I think that is so cool. My wife and I recently did a a workshop around drawing maps. And so these are more like fantasy maps, like related to your life. But I I sort of have this burgeoning new hobby of interest around maps. So I'm going to pick up Prisoners of Geography. That sounds awesome. Definitely. Next question. What tool or methodology has had a big impact on you? I'm a keep it simple person, as you've seen. I think Gemba Walk, let me tell people, you know, what is Gemba Walk? It's about walking in the shoes of the customer and shadowing what they do to see how our customers use it. I'm a huge proponent of Gemba Walk as it keeps you grounded on the problem and the customer. I love it. Next question. What is a trend you're seeing or following that's interesting or hasn't hit the mainstream yet? Okay, I have to say, I'm going to be biased here. (laughs) The magic of self-driving cars can only be experienced by riding a self-driving car. I have observed, uh, you know, skeptics become believers after their first ride. 
another technology that is a parallel uh, and that is gaining traction but has ways to go is clean tech uh, transportation like electric cars, hydrogen cars, etc. And if we humanity can find a way to make a clean transportation accessible in terms of price of cars, fast charging facilities, and we can find a way to mine for the materials that go in production of these cars using green mining method, it would be awesome. Now, if somehow we can marry clean tech transportation with level five autonomous vehicles, I believe we could leave this planet in a much better place for our children. And I'm very fortunate that I'm a small cog of the larger machinery, which is making that possible. A great call out of the convergence of some really interesting ecosystems within the self-driving car and green car space. I think that's incredible. Two more questions. What's been one of the most meaningful in-person experiences with your team, company, or otherwise? I think uh, it's basically just a recent uh, one as well as a couple of them from last year is uh, experiencing both the joy and humility of doing the Gemba walk together with my team, taking crew self-driving rides and observing our operations, running and managing the fleet together, problem solving through it has been amazing. I have to imagine it's completely new territory because there's been so many different, like I like to equate it to like, you know, somebody designs an app, there's a lot of different apps out there and people are familiar with how an experience like that should go typically. But creating an experience around a self-driving ride is completely new territory. So that must have been incredible. Totally. Oh man, I feel like that. I opened up a rabbit hole there. We've got one more last rapid fire question, Bhavani. Is there a quote or mantra you live by or a quote that's been resonating with you right now? Yeah, I'm a people first and big on collaboration. And one of the quotes that's dear to my heart is about this from Mother Teresa. I can do things you cannot and you can do things I cannot. Together we can do great things. Talking about self-reflection, this quote from Anne Lamott is again dear to me, which is almost everything will work again if you unplug it for a few minutes, including you. So take the time to step back, think big, trust yourself and jump in to take the action. A powerful way to close us off, Bhavani. An incredible conversation, everything from career decisions, maturing organizations, uh, even overcoming fear and biases with next steps. Thank you so much for, for joining us and for an incredible conversation. Thank you, Patrick. It was great having you. And thanks once again for all that you do to bring this community together and ahead. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast. 